listening to VC Land, a podcast featuring leading VCs and investors who take us through their investment strategies, portfolio companies, what they like to look for in founders, sectors that are hot, what makes them finally invest, strategies for exit, whether companies should stay private or public, and tips and tactics for companies looking to work with VCs. Welcome to VC Land. There's no doubt that when it comes to venture capital investing in Australia, one of the first names that springs to mind is Airtree. With an unbelievable track record of success, Airtree is one of the leading lights, a real standout in the Australian VC market. And I'm pleased to say that the founder of Airtree, Daniel Petrie, joins me now on VC Land. Daniel, welcome to the program. Thanks very much, Justin. Happy to be here. Okay. Tell us about Airtree. How did it all get started? Okay. Well, Airtree actually is my third venture uh, company or venture fund. Uh, I've had two prior ones, which were both what they call CVCs or corporate venture capital vehicles. One was uh, back in the uh, 90s, started in the late 90s, which was eCorp, and that was backed by PBL or Publishing Broadcasting Limited, which was the Packer family. And that mm-hmm. did quite well. We, uh, that was a mixture of both investing in Australian companies and also bringing uh, overseas companies to Australia in joint ventures. And we did that quite successfully, returned four times cash on cash and had some celebrated successes, both in terms of people like eBay, which we invested $3 million in and got back 120. And <laughs> That's not bad. Not a bad return. And then <laughs> also we bought businesses like Ticketek and then turned them into online businesses. And then we invested in startups. So quite a mix there. Then we did NetUs. Um, so Alison Deans and I uh, co-founded NetUs and then brought Craig Blair in uh, about a year in, and that became uh, the NetUs sort of three uh, partners. And we, again, invested a bunch of Australian companies, brought some technology from the US as well, but more Australian ca- companies we invested in. And that also did close to four times cash on cash, around a 40% IRR, so quite successful. And that was actually backed by News Limited or by, or by the Murdoch. So I had yeah. two funds backed by by media companies. And then I guess when that sort of, we, we sold out of all our investments, our final investments we sold into Fairfax. And then I was sort of looking at what I wanted to do in 2013 and uh, chatted to Alison and chatted to Craig and Alison had gone off to NED land to be a non-executive director on on uh, IAG and then Westpac and Cochlear. And now Ramsey, she's an outstanding individual. Yes. And Craig and we so decided to to do another one and so founded Airtree uh, back in 2014 with a first fund which was in, I guess you know I was a bit worried about raising too much money and and then blowing it up so we mm. ra- we raised 80 million dollars thought it was too much Craig and I and then we gave back 20 um, mm. and so started with 60 <laughs> and then yep. quickly worked out this comes to probably the maturing of the uh, marketplace, but worked out that we actually were investing at a much faster cadence than we thought. Uh, and then so raised again in 2014 and then raised again another, a third fund in 2019. So now we have about $700 million under management across three core funds and two opportunity funds. But I guess the, the point about that story is that, you know, in, in, in the so before Airtree time, so in the NetUs time, we saw about about, I don't know, a thousand investments over four or five years. Well, when we started Airtrue, we were seeing 20 a week. And what had not right, had, okay. what yeah. had been obvious but not 
done in metrics was that it was a lot cheaper to start up a soft start up a company or a software company mainly, but a company in 2014 than it was in 2007 when we started NetArs. It was cheaper. There was a more captive market, and you could do it with 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 quick, uh, much less uh, infrastructure. You didn't need to have servers locked in cupboards. You could get cloud services from <laughs> AWS. A whole bunch of reasons. So you know, cost of capital was less. Uh, you could get traction far more quickly with viral marketing and, and even things like SEM, which weren't really a thing back in 2007 to the same degree. Uh, and you didn't have to buy infrastructure. And so obviously, therefore, there were a lot more startups starting up. So that's why yeah. I think we saw the cadence increase like fivefold, really, in terms of the, the uh, cadence of startups coming into the market. And so then we started investing in, in Airtree One, uh, Craig and I, and, uh, and that's now sitting... Uh, we've had a, a couple of returns from that, but but we're still waiting for the major returns. It's sitting what, yep. what I call a TVPI, which is the total value paid in net of fees of close to four. Uh, we think that fund, I mean, hopefully if things continue the way it is, it'll it'll deliver more than four times uh, to mm. money to yep. our investors in that fund tax-free, so they should be happy. Uh, and there's some great companies in that fund. I mean, obviously Canva is the one that everybody knows. And we're very fortunate to have invested in 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 the journey of uh, Melanie and Cliff and, and Cam, but uh, also some other great companies in there like Hot Dog and, and Ento and Glam Corner. Uh, so it's quite a broad twenty three investments, and then Fund Two and Fund Three. And I can get into those too, but maybe I'll let you jump in and see if I'm heading wow. on the right path. <laughs> <laughs> So what, okay, what would you say? Um, and this this might be hard to answer. Sure. What is the spe- what is the specialty of Airtree apart from trying to find your really good companies to invest Look, in? Are there any like particular segments or sectors you like? Well, I think I think the spe- well, I think there's a couple of things unique to Airtree. Firstly, we're the only fund that's been through two down cycles. You know, so our first fund, Ecorp, went through the GFC and came out the other mm. side with very positive returns, and our second fund. NetUs uh, went through the sorry the first one went through the the 2000 crash and the second fund went through the GFC, um, and I think going through a crash sort of makes you a lot more humble and gives you a lot more humility about how well things are going and how and, and how focused you have to be on the metrics and on how getting people through cash flow positive and how to focus on what operational burn makes sense. So I think one of the things we've de- we've been through, which is Australian ecosystem hasn't been through now in a long while um, is a is a crash a tech crash a, yep. a contraction in investments and we're not even seeing that now right with COVID we're seeing that in the traditional economy and to a little bit in the in the digital economy but generally speaking the COVID has helped a lot of digital companies so I think one of the things we bring that's unique is this perspective of having having helped companies through tough tough times uh, and that's something that really none of the other funds have got. And the other thing is we are probably a little more operational focused. Obviously we are cheerleaders and we are supporters and we are ambitious and we want Australian companies to change the world, but we also want to try and lean in and help. So, you know, in the VC land, Justin, everyone says, oh, you know, 30% of your, of your companies will fail or 40% and 20% will do really well. And the other will just middle their way through. Well, in NetUs and in Ecorp, our failure rate was super low, like sub 10%. And mm. in Fund 1, our, 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 it looks like our failure rate will be also sub 10%. And that's because, of course, we lean into the ones doing well. But we also lean into the ones not doing as well and we help them. 
and that's pretty unique. Uh, yeah, how, how do you do that? Well, I think, you know, first you've got to build trust with the founders. You can't just wander in the door and go, hey, you know, <laughs> you should listen to me because I'm some genius, you know. Uh, and, th- and that's why I think, you know, getting random people in to give advice in tough times is not that helpful. Um, yeah. in, in good times, sure, random advice from random people is great. But in tough times, you want advice from people who are, who've got skin in the game and who are there with you. And so I think that's part of it is earning that trust and then getting into the weeds and saying, let's look at the team, let's look at the OPEX, let's look at, you know, at, at your marketing, let's look at the efficiencies. And really, now if that's a trusted relationship with a founder, then you're going to have this really healthy discussion. And who cares who's right as long as you come to a more informed answer. And so that's what we do. And I think, uh, and that's played out really well in a fun one. There are some, obviously I give you the names, but there are some companies that you know, haven't tracked as well as we'd all hope for, no no reason from the founders, just things didn't go as well as they wanted. Mm. We've leaned in and they've turned into, you know, some success stories, which is, and I've I got to say, that is the greatest feeling about being a venture capitalist is, you know, at some level as a venture capitalist, you're a capital allocator. You're, you're, you're throwing money out to companies in the hope they'll do well. Uh, companies like Canva, who have just the most amazing founders and, and founding team, you know, I don't think they needed help from anyone uh, in terms of <laughs> advice. I, I think yeah. Naomi, Cliff and Cam have just been geniuses. Um, and the, but they're unique. They're, they're like the Scott and Mike Cannon-Brooks, like Scott Farquhar yeah. and Mike Cannon-Brooks. Yeah. Those guys are just very, very clever. I don't think they needed help from anyone on their journey. But yeah. most founders do. They do need some help. And so you can't just be a cap, or you can, but I think just being a capital allocator I don't think is that fulfilling. I think if you can say, here's a company that we actually, you know, lent in on and helped and we can say, and they say Airtree really helped, that's fulfilling. That's, I think, yeah. uh, that's the what I, what I look, look forward to every day. So you mentioned Canva. Obviously, that's been a, a, a huge success story. How did that deal materialize for Airtree? How did you first get wind that there was this business called Canva and, uh, in sure. your view, had, yeah. had potential? Sure. So uh, we weren't, Airtree wasn't around when Canva did its first investments, which I think there were, there were two two rounds, two very, very early rounds, around I think at $6 million, which and then around at 25. And we, mm. we didn't exist at that point in time. They were I think Blackbird invested in both of those. I think SquarePeg invested in, in the second of those. Yeah. And then, uh, really, uh, Paul Bennett, who was working for Airtree at the time, and and who was who was amazing at, at unearthing unearthing opportunities, said to me one day, "You have to meet Melanie Perkins from Canva." And I was like, "Who's Melanie? And what's Canva?" <laughs> okay. <laughs> and um and you know the moment you met Melanie and she told you both her backstory of experience in design and her vision. And then she, and of course, at that point in time, Canva wasn't making any money. But even at that point in time, this is 2014, 15, the, mm. the, the traction with users was extraordinary, the yep. virality of the product. And so really it, it was that introduction and we just uh, said we have, to, we have to try and invest in this company. Um, Somehow. <laughs> yeah, because they're just extraordinary. And it was, look, I think anyone, any fund who's ever had the opportunity to be pitched to or had a chat with Melanie and Cliff and Cam comes away gobsmacked. 
you know, so it's not like you have to sort of look hard to see the brilliance, you know. It's yeah. it's pretty clear. Uh, it's all there. It. Yeah, so we were just very – that was sort of serendipitous. Paul did some great work. Uh, I think we obviously responded quickly and we led that round. We led the, the $75 million round um, and then have subsequently invested in each of the rounds uh, since then. And the rest is history. And the rest is history, yeah. So can you can you walk us through, if you can, the process of how you and your fund, your team, goes about assessing a deal? Sure. Well, I think the first, I can go sort of pre-deal. How do we source opportunities? And we do that through a number of ways. Uh, the obvious way is we respond to people, you know, Knocking on the door, you know, to you know, okay. actually, that yeah. door to actually knock on, but you know what I mean. They, they sort of come, <laughs> come to us. But Virtual the reality door. is, yep. yeah, yeah. The reality is, a lot of really, really great founders um, aren't out knocking on venture capital funds' doors. Uh, they are approached by venture capital by venture capital funds because they're getting traction in a certain sector. So the first part is yes, there's some great companies who just sort of knock on our door, which is fantastic. Another, probably a larger chunk come out of us being in market, attending meetings, chatting to people, and just learning about who's doing interesting things in interesting sectors. Mm. You know, who's who's got a really novel way to come up with a, a solution to a particular use case and then going out and meeting them and chatting to them, building trust, building understanding, and, uh, and trying to move through a process, which ends up as a deal. Now, there are some examples like Linktree, which we've just, co-led around it with Insight Partners out of the US, which is an amazing company. Um, now that John Henderson, you know, met with them, gosh, more than a year before anything happened. Uh, James, uh, Airtree, James Cameron, who's an outstanding partner at Airtree, he's, and uh, there's two two opportunities there which are just going to be huge. One is a cloud guru, one's a kill code warrior. And both of those, James was talking to those founders well before, like, at least a year, if not longer, before they actually did a funding round. So it's right, not, just yep. not just responding, you know, to the to the deal. It's actually building relationships, understanding their, 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 what they're doing and what help they need and can we help them. And then the third category is where we have our own thesis, uh, which is, okay, we think that, I'll get this as an actual one, we think that um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, particularly around uh, image recognition, is going to be super important in medical diagnosis. Now, that's common knowledge now. We had that thesis in 2015, um, and we started looking in the medical diagnosis space for where was where was where where were the first use cases of image recognition uh, going to surface where you had low-noise data sets that could allow a anyone, in fact, obviously a clinician, but anyone, not just a clinician, that could be allied health, to make a better diagnosis than a trained doctor. And yes. the first example there that we actually pursued was in melanoma detection. And so we, to use that example, we hired some PhDs in data science. We did desk research globally about all companies doing research and software in that space. Uh, I think we found 20 companies are interesting. We spoke to 10 of them, narrowed down to two of them, and then came to the conclusion the best company in the world in this space was a a Canadian company run by two Iranian PhDs called Metaroptima. And so we approached them and said, hey, we'd like to invest in you. So, you know, that's the sort of the three ways we come across, if you will, deals. But in, in most cases, it's starting from either developing relationships long before they need money 
um, to us also coming up with our own thesis about a sector and saying we're interested in that area, let's find out more about that area and, and do yeah, okay. interesting things. So when you finally get to eyeball the founders yep. face-to-face, yep. what, what are some of the questions you and your team like to ask of them? Uh, look, it's a good question. I think, you know, everybody, well, not everybody, you hear a lot of the sort of bullshit from our industry, which is, oh, you know, use back any founder. If the founder's great, you back them, whatever they're doing. Well, that's just complete bullshit. You know, you can have someone who's brilliant and, the, and their idea is just stupid. You know, it's, yeah. and not just stupid on face value, but demonstrably stupid after lots of review and research is still stupid. <laughs> so, so, so I think you've got a, a, I think you've got a sort of, it's a combination of, do you have a founder who is ambitious and resilient, but also is he or she informed about what they, you know, do they actually understand the problem that they're trying to address? And importantly, why, why their approach or what, what they want to do is demonstrably differentiated from what someone else is doing and it will work and it has a chance of working. So it's kind of this combination of ambition and passion, life's work, uh, global goals, all those things, you know, res- incredible resilience. You know, one of our founders for his first two years lived in his office, converted the, converted the, the sort of, hand basin to a basically a shower and built his own desks out of plywood. Um, you know, he, he tried to save money. So, you know, this sort of resilience. And then you also want them to be informed, which is they're honest about what they're trying to, what problem they're trying to solve. They're honest about the quality of the competition. They're honest about what it will take to build something that is demonstrably better and has opportunity for success. That That's the kind of the mix you want. Now, one without the other is not much use. You do need the combination to give you a chance of, of pulling off a success story. So no doubt you would have come across a whole lot of different founders in your time. Yeah. Do you, what's your experience uh, with respect to how prepared they are for meetings with VCs, investor meetings? Yeah. Look, I think that's a really good question. And I think it's a, it's a sort of a, a, a bell curve, right? I think, uh, the first thing I'd say is is that it's up to the VCs to make founder meetings enjoyable and less stressful. So, you know, they, they shouldn't come to any meeting being super stressed. That's not the point. The point yeah. is they're already stressed. They're they're already have given up a <laughs> have given up a day job to go and That's try and right. you know build something from scratch. They don't need more stress by hanging out with a bunch of you know wanker financiers, you know, making yes. it feel stressful. So I think part of it is we've got to make it less low stress. I think Having said that, I think it is important for them to collect their thoughts uh, because they've probably thought of all the questions we would answer, we would ask, but they haven't actually probably put it together in an answer. So, you know, one, again, another one of our founders uh, who I love this story is that, you know, he, we were looking in one of the, in a space, in an in a, in a HR workforce management space. We looked at all the competitors and then we got this call from, well, we, I, I can't remember if we called him or he called us anyway. With with a, anyway, I said to him, "Look, um, love to chat to you." Um, he said, "Look, we're thinking about raising some money." I said, "That'd be fantastic." You know, why don't you come and chat to us and you know take us through your pitch deck? You know, because he'd said mm-hmm. he was raising money, figured he had a pitch deck. So yeah. anyway, he arrives, he flies off from Melbourne, <laughs> arrives the next day, and he just he delivers what is probably one of the best pitch decks I've ever seen in terms of just the quality of the information, the quality of the thinking. The clarity it was just brilliant, and I, and I sort of went, "Wow, that's just 
you know, mate, we obviously invested, we led the round and it's gone to be a very successful company. But it was like, you know, who helped you with this? And and he got off the phone from me at 4 p.m. The, the afternoon before. He didn't know what a pitch deck was. He, mm. Googled, he Googled pitch deck yeah. and spent the night looking at world-class pitch decks that you could find on the internet and then built a world-class pitch deck. So, you know. Amazing. Yeah. So I think it is that, and, and he's a great example of this sort of resilience and, and and you know, this sort of work ethic. But I think the point is, he knew the answers. He just didn't know how to put them into a form that was easy to unpack. So I'd say to founders, just have thought through, you know, what's, your, what's, the, what's the use case? What's the problem you're trying to solve? Why is yours better? And, and be open to a discussion. And don't expect you have to have every answer. And, and you know, one of the things, don't, it don't, you know, you hear these things, oh, you know, you got to come up with a backstory, you know, the backstory being, you know, I was at, I was at Woolworths and I saw this and it made me think of, you know, it's, again, it's bullshit. You don't have to have some backstory. You were, you were trekking the Himalayas near base camp and you thought there needed to be da-da-da-da, you know. I think you can just say, hey, I saw a business opportunity and I, yeah, I pursu- let's I pursu- get into it. Yeah, I pursued that. I did some research. I found out that I was, my, my instincts were correct and here's the opportunity. That is just as good a use case as the trekking the Himalayas near base camp, you know, quite frankly. So so what is it when you've when you've gone through yep. the business, you've gone through the pitch deck, you've checked the opposition, what what is the thing that um, finally makes you invest in, and write the check? Yeah, okay. So I think, you know, we have to convince ourselves that uh, – we think the founder has, you know, the the resilience to, and the and the, uh, I guess the behavioural characteristics to want to learn to to do this to, to obviously execute, but learn and execute, not just not just go off on a tangent by themselves. And as I said, very few. I mean, Melanie and and Scott and Mike and a couple of others can do that, but most need to be constantly be checking back somewhere with someone about, you know, can I do this better? Am I open to input? So there's that aspect. And then really comes down to us just saying, you know, do we think this can make money? I mean, that's a sad truth of it is that yeah. um, we have to then sort of work, okay, if this does well and they sell X of that in this time period before the next round, can, do we think that the value of this round can go up three or four or five times um, by the time the next round uh, is needed? And usually, the, you know, usually we are uh, going in at what is the first of might be four, five or six rounds. So it's this constant sense of do we think it'll be worth a lot more, a lot being three to five times in court two years uh, based on proper metrics? Because the other thing that happens between the very early stage and the later stages is the early stages, it's an idea, it's an opportunity to address a, 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 a use case or a problem. Once you get into the second and third raises, now you're talking Series A, late Series A, Series B, it's on metrics. It's on, well, yes. how are you yep. doing? You know, So I think- There's no hiding to, from that, is there? No, no there's not. And, and I think you, what you're trying to also do to help the founders in the early stages realise that the first couple of checks will be kind of on a promise that they'll do this really well, but they have to have built into their thinking they're going to me- be measured for the next one. They can't keep coming back two, three, four, five years later going, hey, I think I want to do some cool thing. It's going to be like, well, did you do the cool thing and how's it going? So helping them understand as they move into execution, it becomes important to 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 use metrics to not only, not only for external investors, that's by the by, but for their own sense of are they on the right track? 
Are they, are, do they have metrics? Yep. When um, when you're making that final decision, yeah. I could imagine there'd be some robust discussion yes. amongst amongst <laughs> the team. <laughs> some some people saying absolutely, others saying it's a dud, forget it, and everything in between. How yeah. do you re- how do you reconcile that and and herd the cats what, into a, into a final decision? So usually, what it requires is one of the uh, investment print, investment leads. So we've got. Uh, four partners, two principals, uh, two associates. Uh, someone is leading it. Someone's passionate about this. You want someone who just thinks this is the greatest thing that's ever happened. Okay. Uh, and they're pushing every – and then they're, so they're pushing and everyone else is asking questions. And once you've gone through all that process and we've had the presentations from the founders and all the analysis, it then comes down to a vote. At the end of that, it comes down to a vote. And, and, and at Airtree, it has to be a majority of the partners uh, who have to agree. Uh, right. And so okay. in our case, it's uh, three partners have to agree that this is something they want to invest in. But once we've had the vote, we're all in. Whether you voted for it or not, we are all in to help this company succeed. Uh, okay. It, it's very rare that we'd have a situation where someone thought this is the best thing that's ever happened to the technology space this millennium and someone else says, this is the dumbest idea I've ever seen. It's very rarely that, you know, it's usually, it's usually, it's good, is it good enough to, this is brilliant. It's, you know, you know, usually if, if, if some people are really, really don't think it's going to work, then most people probably think it's not going to work. It's more the other end, which is one or two think it's really going to be fantastic. And then the others are just not sure. And they, and they, and they're looking for reasons to say yes, rather than reasons to say no. Given the number of uh, opportunities that come uh, the way of Airtree, if you think back, and maybe this is uh, going back before Airtree, sure. have you have you had examples where you've had an opportunity at a very early stage to to invest in a company, and for whatever reason um, it was declined, you didn't go forward, and then and now you've sat back and thought, you know, it could. <laughs> yeah, I've got so I just I've got so many what they call false <laughs> false negatives. Uh, you know, yeah. I think my the one that I'll ever remember is uh, Jeremy Phillips and I who who ran uh, Ecor. Uh, mm. Early in the day, we met with Paul um, Paul Bassett and Andrew's brother, who were founders of Seek. Seek, and, and yes. this goes way way back. And you know, I, th- I think uh, Paul and Andrew might have a slightly different view of the conversation than we did, but we thought anyway, we thought we left a meeting with the opportunity to invest, I can't remember, two or $3 million for 20%-ish of Seek. Uh, yep. And we left the meeting thinking these guys are brilliant. Paul and Andrew are just, they're seriously, they are as good a founder as you'll ever meet in your entire life. Yes. But the, the, the problem was we just thought, there's no way that News Limited and Fairfax will let their rivers of gold be taken away in the job space here by yep. a startup. I mean, surely yep. Fairfax and News understand that if they lose classifieds, they are. Yep. <laughs> and so what we didn't factor in was the stupidity of the large media companies. But, uh, <laughs> that was that was the you know what. Because of course that would have been a very good investment, and, and there are, there are others like that. You know, mm. we had an opportunity in the early days to invest in Afterpay more recently. You know, um, there are, there are wow. examples where we we just probably haven't seen the opportunity as clearly as we could have. Um, yes, 
And you know, you're, and you're, 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 you're going to get false negatives and you're going to get false positives, which is things that you invested in that just were not, didn't turn out to be a great idea. Um, mm. And what you're, what you're hoping to is trying to minimize both tails. You try and minimize the false negatives. So you're not saying, you know, there's two ways you'll miss out on something. One way is you just don't see it. And the second way is you say no to it. So what we're in that end, what we're trying to do is try and make sure we see, in inverted commas, spend time with every opportunity that's out there. We really want to, we really want to try and see everything. And so the only reason we won't invest is that we have uh, either not been able to convince the founders that we're worthy of talking to, or we've said no, but not that we didn't see it. And on the other end is we've said yes to things that didn't work out. What can we learn from that? You know, mm. what is it? What is it that we got wrong? I guess same same for false negatives is also what did we get wrong in our analysis? Now, do you have a view on whether the companies you invest in should stay private or potentially go public on an exchange? That's a really good question. I think. Look, I think eventually all companies we invest in will end up either IPOing or being acquired. Um, they won't stay private forever. They can't because eventually at some point in time uh, they will need liquidity for a much broader base of investors and employees than they can just handle through secondary markets, right? So in, yeah. you know, in the US you've seen a lot this long run of companies saying private, but eventually they either have to either be a, they're acquired or they're, they're IPO'd. More often than not, companies tend to be acquired than IPO, but there's other paths. I think that the issue in Australia, the unique issue in Australia is that uh, you saw this a while back and you're seeing it now again, is companies that are, that are unable to raise money in the private markets and are too small uh, to be said they're sustainable are going public. So you've got companies in the tech space going public at $30 million valuations or $50 million valuations or $80 million, and that is way too small. Yeah. That, you know, at that, le at that level, you do not have yet a sustainable business model that is up to the rigour of a view that's required of a public market. And I think mm. that just what's happening there is a mixture of they probably can't raise money in the private markets uh, at a valuation they think is fair, or B, they're getting a lot of pressure from uh, broking firms who want to just get them out the door and do listings. It's, but it's not helpful for the Australian technology industry to have lots of small companies listing because in the Australian marketplace, there aren't, any, there aren't enough people doing the analysis or research on the small cap tech companies. So the investor base isn't getting a lot of very high quality information about that small company. So you need to be really kind of well north of $100 million in valuation to get any research on you that helps the investing public get a, get a reasonable view of your company that allows your company to then be traded in a reasonable open, reasonably open way. Uh, I think we've got a lot to learn still about this sort of the public markets versus private markets in Australia. So on that point, do you think there's a good understanding of what VC investment is all about? Uh, not look. I think it's getting better. I think there is there are people who confuse venture capital with private equity, and they're quite different vehicles. You know, private equity tends to be much larger checks into a smaller number of companies where you have a lot of data on the companies. You know a lot about them, and venture capital yeah. tends to be. I mean, it can be segmented 
you, know, you don't know a lot about the company, there's not a lot of data about them, and you're investing in quite a lot in each fund. Uh, of course, you've got later stages as well, which is sort of the later stages of venture start to bridge into private equity, but they're quite distinct. And I think Australia is used to private equity and getting used to venture capital. I think the 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 you know the harsh reality is that we've been on a bull run in venture capital since 2012, when I think of the uh, you know the new era of venture capital firms. Blackbird was the first one in 2012 of the new of the new lot, if you will, and they've done yep. they've done a tremendous job. Uh, Rick and, and Nikki done an amazing job there, but then you know an Ars and Square Peg, and and now look, you know literally over 100 venture capital funds. Now we've not seen really none of those venture funds have yet returned the end of their fund. I mean, Blackbird did a very good job of, of re-architecting their first fund to allow there to be returns to LPs and then continuing on in their Chapter 2 structure. But generally speaking, we've not seen these full cycles of the funds, like capital yes. returns, nor have we seen, which I think is important, is fund-on-fund fund returns, which is, and we saw this go back to the 2000s, there were funds in the 2000s who did one great fund and the next fund was shit, <laughs> uh, you know. Mm. And what you want to see to have a healthy industry is firms that can have fund on fund on fund success. Now, it might be slightly different successes. One might be a 35% IRR and the next is a 27% IRR and then a 40% IRR. But generally you're saying these guys know what they're doing. And if you look across the best of the US fund, Union Square Ventures, uh Sequoia, uh, Insight, I mean, there's a, bu- there's a bunch of them, obviously, I think there's like 20. Um, they're really good. They've shown that. They've shown fund on fund success. So that we need to prove out. And so our hope is, or my belief is, over the next two or three years, everyone's fund one, which is the 2012, 13, 14 funds, will be coming to the end of their life. There'll be those fund returns locked in. People have got, we've got multiples of their money back out of the better firms. And the second of their funds will now be six or seven years in. It'll be very yep. clear where they're going. And so now you'll start to see this, okay, we can now work out of these hundreds of venture firms in Australia, which are the ones that have actually built systemic, sustainable success. And, and hopefully a tree will prove the point that we're one of those. Do you have a view on whether businesses, Australian businesses, should try to raise money locally or head overseas? I think they should ma- raise money from wherever they feel they can have the greatest success. I, you know, we operate in a global market. Uh, we do invest overseas, although we're obviously selective on 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 who we invest in overseas. Uh, yeah. We have US firms who invest in Australia. I mentioned Linktree earlier, which which we co-led that round with Insight out of the US. So I think uh, I don't think Australian firms should be be told where to raise from. I think the reality is in the early stages, the first checks, a sort of million, two million, is more than likely to come from Australian venture firms because US venture firms tend not to be, or European as well, tend not to be writing checks of less than five or $10 million. Mm-hmm. But once you're getting to sort of late Series A, Series B, the world's your market, and I think that's good That's good tension. You know, if a, I don't think Australian firms should feel they've got some sort of lock on Australian companies. If 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 a Australian company can get better terms from a US or UK VC firm, then they should go off and get it. And you know, bad luck Australian venture firms, you should have done a better job. And what about COVID? Obviously, it's been a different operating environment over the past six months. How has uh, the coronavirus 
impacted or changed, affected uh, the VC market in Australia? Look, this is one of the things I sort of, you know, I, I genuinely feel a bit upset about is that if I look at our world, we've got 55 companies now in portfolio across the three core funds and the two opportunity funds. Um, of those companies, genuinely probably 45 to 50 are doing well. Uh, and then the five that aren't doing well haven't gone belly up, but they're struggling. Uh, yeah. And of the 45 to 50 are doing well, more than half will be doing very, very well. So there's no question that COVID has provided jet fuel to the digitization of Australian economy in regards to anything to do with e-commerce or collaboration software, uh, workforce management, HR software, or anything in the med tech space. And we're, we're, we're quite exposed to those sectors. And so we've seen some just, you know, some step function improvements in performance during COVID across a cohort of those of companies in those sectors. So, you know, when I look at our world, I think the world's a great place. You then talk to friends who are in the traditional world, e-commerce world, hospitality or travel, and the decimation that's going on makes you feel, to be honest, a little bit guilty about how, how lucky we are in, in our sector. Okay, final question. You're a, you're a business founder in Australia and you're looking for VC money or you'd like to approach a VC, what what is your advice on the best way of doing that? Sure. Look, I think the best way is a warm introduction. So, find you know through LinkedIn or whatever means, find someone who knows one of the invest investors, lead investors in that fund. So, in Atri, there are as I mentioned, there's about eight of us who are on the investing side. So, find someone in your network who knows one of us. That's the best and easiest introduction. Is a warm introduction because we're more likely to take a recommendation from a someone we know than from someone else. The the other way would be to just that's go a direct. deal coming through right now. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That would be go would be go direct. Just come direct. We've got a we've got a, an info at entry.vc. Go there. We we look at that every day and we we do take cold calls because some people just don't know other people. And so they have to um, just come cold and, and we do we we what we try to do with every call we get, every meeting we have um, every email exchange is to try and honestly try and give value to people. So if you do come to us cold, we will look at, we will talk to you, we'll look at what's going on, and we'll try, if we can't help, we'll try and point you in the right direction. But if we can help, that would be great. Daniel Petri from Airtree, it's been an absolute pleasure talking with you today. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks, Justin. Really appreciate it. <laughs>